0: Hello and welcome uh, to what is the second in, we hope to be, a three-part series uh, on Mercury Living Presence, celebrating the uh, issue and then reissue uh, of Box 1, which we did the last time, uh, and now a Box 2. Uh, and we do hope in the near future Box 3 uh, of recordings uh, that have been reissued on CD from the Mercury Living Presence series, Uh, and we have our panelists again from the first program on this subject and many others, Cedric Clark and Dennis Rooney, uh, to discuss uh, the recordings in this second set. Uh, And I'll go to Cedric for some introductory words. Thank
1: you, Lou. On our first panel discussion on Mercury CDs, we discussed... The first of uh, the Universal Classics Collector's Edition boxes got to 50 CDs. The second Collector's Edition, now at hand, totals 55 CDs, and it contains a 171-page booklet consisting of the full label copy on the original single CD releases, which was not included in the first box, and excellent essays about the Mercury Living Presence label and its creators by master discographer Michael Gray and by one of Wilma's sons, Thomas Fine. And a booklet also includes loads of fabulous photos. Um, Unfortunately, these sets are budget offerings, and there are no liner notes, uh, the liner notes being what I was specifically involved in for this series. The first recording we're going to hear is one of Mercury's bestsellers. Respighi's Ancient Airs and Dances. From suite number one, we'll hear Balletto Detto Il Conte Orlando. And this is by Antal Doherty conducting the Philharmonia Hungarica. Was the first piece of suite number one of Respighi's ancient airs and dances, Balletto Detto il Conte Orlando. And the performers were the Philharmonia Hungarica, conducted by Antal Dorothy. Um, I find this myself one of the most vivid and beautifully balanced of the Mercury recordings to get that real living presence, and the strings just dig in with such uh, fervor and vivacity. Uh, this was, as I said, one of uh, Mercury's. Uh, most popular, best-selling records, and it certainly deserves it, I think.
2: It's music that has been in the record catalogs for about 80 years. Uh, It has always pleased uh, listeners, and this performance uh, is one that features the famous Philharmonia Hungarica, which was a refugee orchestra. The players all left Hungary in the 1956 Revolution and settled in Germany. Dorati made many recordings. He was kind of Uh, patron to them the performances are what you'd expect there it is ballet music after all and that was Dorati's specialty Uh, the orchestration is on the chamber side so it's easy to get a good sound with that few players compared to a 90-piece symphony orchestra and it was a, a very steadily popular record because it met a need There had been no stereo recording of this material until it came along.
0: I was surprised, too, uh, at the uh, lack of frequency in concert performances, let's say, over the past quarter century uh, of this piece, because as a young fellow, uh, I remember it frequently on, on concert programs, at least in New York. Uh, and uh, it was very pleasant. Uh, it, have, of course, uh, had an historical character to it. Uh, and uh, yet, Respighi, with his special brand of instrumentation and, and orchestration, um, did what he did with them uh, without, in, uh, should I say, insulting the genre. Um, at least, I don't think he did. Some might have. Uh, but uh, it, it, uh, the release was important because the release this is always going to be there. Uh, and And it did have a, a, a big sales um, you know factor. Uh, and the result uh, is that um, while I don't think it's had an impact on the concert hall as much, there have been since this recording a handful of recordings uh, uh, and And not to say that they um, do the work as much justice as I really think Durati does here. Uh, but be that as it may, Uh, It would be nice to see this come back uh, into the concert hall.
1: I've often thought of approaching Alan Gilbert at the New York Philharmonic and asking him, uh, why don't you do all three suites in one year? Uh, First suite, first program in the middle, and so on and so forth. Uh, It seems to me you're trying to get audiences interested in classical music and trying to find things that aren't played often. Well, here's something that's tuneful and would make a nice way to open a concert.
2: Well, I think Alan would be more interested in doing a complete Magnus Lindbergh concert, (laughs) uh, frankly. The other reason is that uh, although you will get orchestras in New York, such as uh, Orpheus and uh, Orchestra of St. Luke's, those kinds of orchestras uh, playing this music, one of the reasons you don't hear it as much is the fact that it is tricky and it needs rehearsal. And one thing that is in short supply among professional orchestras is adequate rehearsal time. Uh, This was a recording. It wasn't the result of a concert, the Dorati, so they had adequate time to rehearse it. Uh, This is one of the principal deterrents to some of this repertoire being performed. It's too difficult to prepare in the amount of time that orchestras have, and they'd rather do something else, particularly being trendy among their peers, whereas doing this music, which is unimpeachably beautiful, and one of Respighi's finest creations, uh, like the birds. Uh, You just have to have a conductor who has a real commitment to doing it.
1: So, we'll now listen to, I think it's the last mono recording that Mercury made. It was made in May of uh, uh, 1955 and the next sessions they had were in November with Doherty in Minneapolis, uh, which included the second suite by Bartok. But this is a fabulous performance by Frederick Fennell in the Eastman Wind Ensemble of the Holst Suite No. 1. He does both suites on this CD, or on this record in these recordings, and we have chosen the March, the third movement, from uh, the Holst Suite Number no. 1 in E-flat.
3: Thank <laughs> you.
2: music and that recording was one of mercury's most celebrated it's an ear opener in every respect first of all fred finnell had a just a m- magical gift for playing that music with an exquisite light touch and with the uh, kind of virtuosity that american players in particular demonstrated uh it was a first recording on LP, there had been a 78 of the first suite of Holst, and all the repertoire on that original LP was just delightful and really made people understand that band did not mean the stars and stripes forever, and uh, that there was a whole tradition of of band music that had been largely ignored, and that's one of the most important things that Frederick Fennell did was to Fill in that portion of the repertoire.
0: I couldn't agree more. Uh, in fact, personally, uh, not just the two whole suites, uh, but several other uh, works on this recording uh, Vaughan Williams' folk song suite, which was very popular, uh, but not uh, very popular to the English, I think, more than the Americans. Uh, and, and this particular recording introduced to uh, American audiences, um, this music. But the whole genre of band music brings something to mind for me um, in, in that when I heard of uh, this, this music as a young lad, I too was taken with it. I mean, it was just delightful and, and simple and, and yet not so simple, but forgetting the musical intricacies of the thing, uh, it was enjoyable uh, and direct and uncomplicated. Uh, and uh, in some instances, blacksmith number, fun, um, and the, the orchestra I was with, which also played a lot of wind music at the time, because of course it was it was a high school orchestra uh, and was prone to do that, uh, uh, had played ultimately all of the three pieces I mentioned, the two whole suites and the Vaughan Williams, uh, but I had no idea. The, the breadth and depth of wind band music that comes out of our universities until many, many years later when I discovered uh, that what we call art music or serious music was actually being written by composers whose names we didn't know, Alfred Reed, William T. Smith, and, and, and so many others, uh, and recorded uh, by university Symphonic bands I say that because it's a serious term for a serious art uh, on their own labels hardly at, distributed at all uh, lived and died who knows what a minute existence and yet are there and i I thought when we started this series and it came to my attention about the band recordings that of which this is just one that it really would be interesting uh, for someone uh, to make it a project to discover the breadth of this university band music and see if there's anything out there that is worthy of recording uh, as i think they will find there is uh, and do something about it
2: mostly you need good university uh, bands now a wind ensemble is usually composed of the finest players in the band program then we have a second band if if your budget's big enough then you have the marching band and the marching band is what many americans think it that's what band music is well it's not it's people sitting down and playing this music in a hall with a level of virtuosity that no marching band can match whatever the flash that it contributes to halftime at a football game so that's what Fred Fennell did, and Mercury allowed him to do it, uh, and this is only the, it's not the first instance of uh, concert music that he recorded, but it's certainly connected with an audience and with critics in a way that nothing else had quite done.
1: I have a couple things to say. First, Holst did not only write The Planets. That's not the only piece that he wrote, and which uh, I think you'll have heard. Uh, this is uh, a lively piece uh, that uh, you'll want to hear the first two movements and also the suite number two. Um, second, um, Fennell was recorded from the very beginning. I think 1952 was the first of his recordings, the very beginning of the Mercury Project. Uh, this was something that Wilma found very important, she felt, uh, to do wind music, as well as having Howard Hansen do American music, but we'll get to that very soon. Um, and uh, the other point I don't remember, so I'm just going to say, Dennis, why don't you introduce the, new, the next pieces?
2: Well, going from band music to harpsichord music is a shift. So I'll try and introduce uh, w- the performer who contributed harpsichord uh, repertoire to the Mercury label. His name was Raphael Pujana, and he was a pupil of Vanda Landowska and t- tended to favor her play El Harpsichord. So the uh uh, the the two artists uh have many similarities, although he he went on somewhat beyond Landovska, who was basically dead by the time he began recording.
1: Basically basically
2: dead. (laughs) Totally dead, (laughs) completely dead. Anyway, sort of like the Munchkins, you know in the Wizard of Oz. Uh he his first album These were recorded at fine sound in Manhattan. And a harpsichord, as you know, doesn't put out that much acoustic power, even a playel. And uh, so when we got the golden age of harpsichord music, the first release by Puyana on LP, we put it on and we listened to this very lovely harpsichord sound and all the acceleration noise from trucks on West 57th Street. I don't know what uh, survived the uh, transfer to uh, 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 the digital master, but I know that Wilma was not inclined to make use of devices that might have minimized that (laughs) unmusical effect. Anyway, from that album, uh, we are going to listen to uh, the piece that grabbed me for the first time I put that record on. Uh, It's La Volta or The Turnaround by William Byrd. Volta by William Byrd, performed by Rafael Puyana on that uh, reissue of Mercury's famous LP album, The Golden Age of Harpsichord Music. Puyana continued to record for Mercury over several more releases, and from a later one called Baroque Masterpieces for the Harpsichord, we're going to listen to something a bit more serious than dance music. This is the Passicalia in D minor by Johann Caspar Ferdinand Fischer. Pasikalia in D minor by Johann Caspar Ferdinand Fischer, performed by Raphael Pujana, who plays a Playel harpsichord, the same instrument favored by his teacher, Wanda Landowska. Pujana had a wonderful sense of registration and an excellent sense of articulation. Those qualities come down uh, through these recordings, which sound better on CD than they ever sounded on LP.
1: Well, they also don't have the surface noise that those wretched LPs had, at least after Wilma left anyway. She, she maintained that uh, the surfaces were very good when she was there, but they certainly fell apart afterwards.
2: Actually, Mercury uh, recordings issued in the early 60s sounded just fine from a surface point of view. It was only after the sale to Phillips in 64 that things went to hell. I was working in the retail record business in those days, and one could very, very readily noticed the deterioration in manufactured quality. And this, of course, was at a time when the impetus supplied by Wilma in the matter of A&R was no longer present, and the releases got weirder and weirder, and then finally became irrelevant. Uh, but uh, that's something that fortunately uh, didn't affect the first issue of this recording, which is uh, Aaron Copeland's Rodeo which uh, is one of the later Minneapolis recordings with Dorothy, who had a very, very strong interest, not just in ballet, that is something that followed him throughout his professional life, but also in American music in general. Many, many works were premiered between his uh, arrival in 1949-50 season and his departure in the 1959-60 season. And although Copeland is not a premier or was in anything like an unknown piece, he brings tremendous verve to this performance of Hodown, and the sound is uh, one of the best pickups in Northrop Auditorium that I'm acquainted with that Mercury achieved.
0: We've just heard The Hoedown, one of four dance episodes from the Ballet Rodeo by Aaron Copland, performed by the Minneapolis Symphony Orchestra, directed by Antal Doherty. I wanted to make one comment about this entire recording, and not just the Copland. We're going to hear uh, another part of it momentarily, but... Uh, and that—that's a work by Gunther Schuller. But, uh, and beside the fact that it has uh, George Gershwin's *American in Paris* uh, uh, on it, it also has uh, a work by Ernst Bloch, his *Symphonia Breve*, uh, which, uh, again, is one of those pieces that—that that is not one one would expect to be very familiar to to the audiences of the time. It's been performed f- more frequently after this recording. I don't. I don't think that there's necessarily any connection. Uh, but be that as it may, it's just a, 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 an indication of what Mercury was doing here uh, to include a work that, in, in uh, a recording of, uh, of uh, well-known, relatively well-known pieces by a composer or a, a work of a composer that uh, whoever produced the recording felt it would be important to introduce, if, if that's, that's not probably the right word, but to include, uh, just for familiarity purposes, to get a little bit more range in the general repertory of, of, of our listening public.
1: Well, one of the things Wilma was most proud of was the repertoire in on, on Mercury Records. And this is an example, I suppose, of, around this time, um, as we all remember, um, mono was giving way to stereo, and so all of these pieces could be recorded again. And she would look and see what she, uh, with the artist, and feels that should be recorded other than an, another, she, she did another Scheherazade, yes. But something like the block work, um, something like the seven studies on themes of Paul Clay that we're going to hear in a moment. Um, or at least we'll hear one of the movements of that. These were things that hadn't been done, uh, and Mercury beat everyone else to the punch, and so that's one thing that made the label very well known. The next piece we're going to do is it was a favorite of Doherty's, and that's why it was recorded. I'm sure it's the Seven Studies on Themes of Paul Clay by Gunther Schuller. And what we're going to hear is the Twittering Machine. Um, this probably is is Gunther's uh, Bolero. This is something that is played often, and uh, uh, and and you'll find it's just a delightfully witty piece. I think he's a very underrated composer. So let's let's take a listen to Gunther Schuller's Seven Studies on Themes of Paul Clay, The Twittering Machine, with Antal Doherty conducting the Minneapolis Symphony Orchestra.
2: machine, one of the seven studies on themes of Paul Clay by Gunther Schuller. Antal Dorati commissioned that piece and premiered it with the Minneapolis Symphony Orchestra in 1959 and that recording was made thereafter. The commitment to American works, as I mentioned earlier, was a feature of Dorati's tenure in Minneapolis. He was introduced to Paul Fettler who taught counterpoint and composition at the University of Minnesota's music department. As far as I know, Dr. Fettler is still among us, living in Sarasota in retirement. I last saw him a few years ago and had an animated evening with him. Contrast for Orchestra is a work of great strength, and it is not a fancy piece or a flashy piece but it's a nourishing piece and dorati made an excellent recording of it there haven't been very many more there should be but here is the allegro marchale presto from contrasts for orchestra by paul fettler
0: a work by Paul Fettler, Contrast for Orchestra, the finale, uh, therefrom, Allegro Marciale Presto, uh, performed by the Minneapolis Symphony, directed by Anto Dougherty. I I want to just quickly make a remark about, about this recording again. Now, the recording itself, the entire recording, essentially consists of four works by French composers. And then comes Paul Fettler. I think that's indicative, again, of of the the sensibilities of the producers. I mean, they could have put another French composer and maybe something that was either obscure or known or whatever, but they gave instead a chance for a local composer, as it were, uh, to uh, have a recording of a performance of a work of his by the Minneapolis Symphony on this disc. And I agree completely with, with Dennis that this is a well, I'll, I'll use my crude terminology, a blast of a piece. Uh, and and uh, it is, a, in a sense, a pity that, uh, at least to my knowledge, few, if any, f- additional recordings of this composer's music appeared. Uh, there are times, I suspect, when uh, the, the, the uh, programming of a, a rare composer's work or at least not well uh, a composer not well known to the general public does generate uh, some interest um, but now we have it again <laughs> so there's in a way another chance here it is uh, you know a wake-up call uh, because I'd be very curious to know what other works as I'm sure he's written uh, that he uh, has that have come from his pen uh, and uh, would love to hear a recording of it.
2: Well, he did quite a few chamber works of different sorts and songs, and these things have been documented off and on. But he was, by and large, a composer who was content to have a local reputation because he was rooted in the Twin Cities area for his professional life. uh, And I'm sure wouldn't have minded a few performances by the Philadelphia or New York or Boston symphonies or maybe even the Vienna Philharmonic uh, but in any event, uh, Dorati was an outstanding advocate. I need to just point out a little discographic piece of Beck-Messerey. The contrast by Fettler was the flip side of the Schuller Seven Studies on Paul Clay in its initial, uh, initial LP release. Some of the works that have been, um, shall we say, coupled uh, are... Uh, are strange fruit a bit in this uh, in this series of compilations, uh, dictated as they were by time as much as by a uh, and uh, sympathetic, uh, uh, stylistic uh, similarity. Dennis's
1: point is well taken. Uh, originally, Wilma felt that there's no need to put more than 60 minutes on a CD, and I disagreed wholeheartedly with her and took her to Tower Records, remember when they had retail stores. Um, and we over... Heard a number of people talking about what they wanted to buy. And there were people saying, Yes, but how many minutes are there on this CD? This one only has 60. This one has 75. We ought to buy the one that has 75 minutes. And she was appalled by this, but she understood exactly why we should put so much on to uh, a CD. And here's an example now. We're going to hear a uh, uh, selection from the other Mercury. Um, the other Mercury Orchestra of uh, that time, and this is the Detroit Symphony Orchestra under Paul Perret. And um, this is called French Opera Highlights. Well, um, the record, or the uh, repertoire that was on the LP is on here, and a few things have been added from a different LP that uh, Perret uh, uh, recorded, and um, this happens uh, throughout these CDs because we wanted to make sure that we had oh, over 70 minutes at least on each CD. And my feeling about that was we should do as much as we possibly can, so we'd be sure to get most of the uh, most of the catalog on these CDs. At any rate, uh, just this past weekend, I was listening to this disc, and the first selection is the Overture to Zampa by Ferdinand Erold. And I thought this is a real spiffy performance. Uh, Really, uh, uh, Paré uh, kicks up his heels at this one. I remember Wilma saying that Dr. Paré did not like slow tempos. And boy, you hear it in this, and this is a lot of fun.
2: and the Detroit Symphony Orchestra in that wonderful circusy piece by Harold the Zampa Overture, a favorite of band concerts and uh, circus bands throughout history. It's a piece that all French conductors seem to have an innate ability to bring off successfully. Even the relatively sober Charles Munch made a fabulous recording of it. Uh, just a little bit before Pore's recording.
0: I just want to interject one thought again. Uh, I recall uh, this work uh, from my youth uh, because it was uh, a concert uh, piece done fairly often as an opener because it's so lively and, and so delightful uh, and then it disappeared. And in fact, with it the name of its composer who wrote Numerous and very popular operas in in Paris uh, during the you know the mid early to mid 19th century, uh, and this has always been an issue for me. And I don't want to indulge myself in it, but that there have been so many composers and, the, and works that achieved great fame in their lifetime, and then suddenly disappeared off the face of the earth. Now, unless we're we're totally different uh, from the audiences that enjoyed this music when when it uh, it was premiered successfully, which I would tend to think is only slightly true, but not enough. There there doesn't seem to be any reason to ignore success. Dennis, you wanted to say something.
2: Uh, one of the big reasons that repertoire like the Zampa overture is not heard is that the zeitgeist has shifted. Uh, The fact of the matter is that entertainment music, uh, like this, which remains entertaining, became suddenly déclasse among conductors who wanted to aspire to greater uh, uh, interpretative uh, heights, and just being able to manage this overture and its varying tempos and rhythms, successfully, didn't seem to be enough of a challenge, particularly after you had people like Xenakis or Boulez. Uh, and it, it, it turned conductors from uh, being basically leaders into traffic cops. The more successful traffic cops wouldn't hear of conducting music of Herold or our next composer, Chabrier. Uh, his Espana Rhapsody used to be a popular opener at concerts, and then it was turned into a Perry Como song with words I wouldn't dare to repeat. (laughs) Uh, But one of the enduring Chavrier pieces that has survived every change of fashion is the Joyeuse Marche, or Marche Joyeuse, depending upon what edition you look at. This is one of Pore's very finest uh, recordings of lighter music, in my opinion. It comes from another Mercury uh, CD in this set, which is devoted mostly to Chavrier, but also to a quite different composer, who uh, we will listen to after we listen to the Chavrier Joyeuse March. Detroit Symphony Orchestra under Paul Paray. conducting the Detroit Symphony Orchestra in that Mercury recording of Chabrier's Joyeuse March. that I mentioned on this CD had uh, there were some compilation things that are a little idiosyncratic, but in any event, it's valuable to have Albert Roussel's suite in F contained on it. Roussel is a composer who has definitely lost favor in recent years. The only thing of his that's done very often is the Bacchus et Ariane Ballet Suite. Yet he was celebrated enough in his lifetime for Serge Kuzovitsky to commission his Third Symphony as part of the uh, Boston Symphony uh, 1930 commissions that produced uh, things like the uh, Symphonie de Somme of Stravinsky. But that piece doesn't have any problem getting performed, but even the Third Symphony isn't heard in concert very often in this country, Uh, You have to go to francophone country to find it, uh, where sympathy for the composer is still very much stronger. He's a composer very much in need of re-examination. He has a clarity, a lightness, a lack of sentimentality, and a vigor that are all positive uh, values. We aren't going to hear the Third Symphony. We're going to hear another work of his, The Suite in F, Opus 33, and only a part of that because what we're going to listen to is the Sarah Band followed by the Gigue Finale. Once again, these two excerpts from Roussel's Suite in F, played by the Detroit Symphony Orchestra under Paul Paré.
1: just heard the Sarabande and the Jig from Roussel's Suite in F, Detroit Symphony Orchestra under Paul Perret. Now, a comment I wanted to make about uh, we're talking about compilations again. Yes, it seems rather strange to have uh, Roussel coming after Chabrier, but it fit. And uh, one other thing uh, is this is the first stereo release of this performance. It had never been released in stereo before, so Wilma thought it was important to put on. Which I, with which I agree wholeheartedly. Munch, by the way, was uh, one who made uh, he made a recording of the suite and performed it often up in Boston, and he was uh, he was probably the biggest um, the biggest champion of the third symphony. And when he died, performances got a lot less frequent, unfortunately, at least here in the United States. Now we have not gotten to Howard Hansen, a distinguished American composer from Wahoo, Nebraska. And this is going to be the first thing we play of his. This, he was another one that Wilma was extremely proud of because of doing all of this American music. Um, Wilma's taste, as, as Dennis uh, pointed out, uh, uh, you won't find any Boulez or Zanakis on, on these records. Uh, she had a conservative taste, but she wanted to do new music. And... Howard Hanson was a wonderful exemplar of the new music. He conducted the Eastman Rochester Orchestra, which was a student group plus, um, plus uh, Rochester Philharmonic um, uh, what
2: ringers. Rochester Symphony Rochester Orchestra, Symphony? largely, Larry. with a few talented Eastman st- students in sitting among them.
1: It wasn't mainly the students? No. Okay, well, there we are. Um, that's fine. But do you want to continue about Hobgoblin?
2: Well, of course, this wasn't a new work when Hansen recorded it. He had also recorded a portion of it for Victor when he made a few recordings uh, in 1939 and 1940. Uh, however, he believed in it, and that is why this is one of the most successful recordings of it ever made, because it just jumps off of the, uh, uh, the recorded medium. Uh, you know. And, of course, this is a tremendously exciting and uh, just enjoyable american orchestral work from a conservative composer whose other works are not particularly well known but you know who worked actively and was an important teacher to many other american composers this is the lineage that hansen would have celebrated uh But it's, uh, leaving all of those issues aside, it's simply his sympathy for the work and the success with which it's done. It's also a pleasure to hear it in this version because the original LP, and particularly the original stereo LP, were hideously distorted and overcut, Uh, a tribute to the late George Piroz.
0: You just heard uh, from the uh, symphonic sketches of George Whitfield Chadwick, Hobgoblin, performed by the Eastman Rochester Orchestra, directed by Howard Hanson. I wanted to make a comment about uh, that, may not be uh, one uh, that would come to your mind uh, unless uh, directed. Uh, And it's not about the music, although I've always loved Chadwick's pieces and not just the symphonic sketches. And and it is delight to have it on this, what, a a single recording of the work? I think there were one or two recordings that were made, I can't recall. But the point is the cover, uh, which shows, I wish I could could, could show it to you, Uh, a, well, Hobgoblin. Fair enough. With... Orange red hair, um, like in a shaggy kind of of, of, of cut, uh, uh, painted face, much like a clown, but very but kind of sinister, uh, and and some other uh, you know clothings. Uh, but the point was, it just jumped out at anyone who's who's um, uh, wandering through the 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 the, the, the recordings, uh, and and. It, it almost forces you to take its challenge uh, and get the thing, and and once you do, uh, there's no question that you you if you like music at all would be delighted by this, and and it should have had again more of an effect uh, on on Chadwick, but but I think Dennis made the point, and he was completely correct that Chadwick was relatively conservative. Notwithstanding this piece as a conduct, as a composer, and so other works like the symphonies and and uh, other pieces by him orchestral particularly might not uh, have the same flavoring uh, that a work like this has uh, and, and so I suspect uh, is the reason why uh, uh, we don't have a large repertory of recordings by Chadwick. Nevertheless, uh, the the LP uh, did as does the CD include other American composers, uh, McDowell, whose name is familiar generally, I think, uh, his suite for large orchestra, but more particularly, uh, reaching back into the old days of the of the Pennsylvania Dutch, uh, Johann Friedrich Peter, uh, who was a, a Composer born in 1746. Yes, we had American composers, folks, uh, before the mid 19th century, uh, and and he was one. Although he wasn't born in America, he settled in Pennsylvania and became an, uh, a composer and performer of note. He was a
2: Mennonite and uh, one of the a, culture, a a culturally sophisticated community for colonial America, even though they were out in rural Pennsylvania. But among the uh, music that uh, was theirs was a Haydn symphony. The uh, score had never been seen before. It was thought to be lost, and it turned up in this uh, collection. Uh, Pater wrote wonderful string quintets, which Mercury didn't record. American Decca did. I mean, it was a period in which there were much greater possibilities than that later became. The uh, thing that Hansen contributed to the Mercury catalog were these authoritative performances of American scores. And another one uh, had a cover which didn't have the high impact of the hobgoblin, who looks, by the way, uh, younger people, like a club rat uh, as much as anything else. But uh, uh, although that may even now be a passe term, I, I wouldn't know. Uh, The next recording we're going to hear, however, is of a composer who was about contemporaneous with Chadwick but took a completely different path. Chadwick was an academic all his life and got tarred with that that appellation, unfortunately. Charles Ives uh, basically was an avocational composer. He made a fortune in the insurance business and was an innovator in that business that people don't usually understand. But that allowed him to indulge in a fierce, idiosyncratic creativity that didn't require performances or ingratiating oneself with performers uh, in order to uh, satisfy him. Three Places in New England is one of his more ambitious orchestral scores. It has a big canvas, and we're going to listen to what is more like a scherzo in the three movements that uh, comprise the suite uh, than anything else, and it's called Putnam's Camp. The outstanding feature of Putnam's Camp, uh, if I can just give a brief program note, is that he has two bands marching in from different directions, gradually coming together. This allows for polyrhythms and a kind of style of uh, textual density that simply was beyond the ability of even the most uh, celebrated orchestras at, at the time. And when this recording was issued in the mid-50s, uh, Hansen uh, uh, managed to sort things out quite well. Other, com- other conductors subsequently have sorted things out even better in that movement because, of course, musicians have simply gotten better in in that aspect. But this is a real pioneering recording, and it has a wonderful kind of barbaric yawp that's very, very pleasant to hear. So let's listen to Putnam's Camp from Charles Ives's Three Places in New England with Howard Hanson conducting the Eastman Rochester Symphony Orchestra. Thank um. you.
0: just heard Putnam's Camp from Charles Ives Three Places in New England uh, performed by the Eastman Rochester Symphony directed by Howard Hanson uh, we're going to go on now with another Howard Hanson work which uh, actually uh, we did on another program uh, and it is uh, The Adventures in a Perambulator one of the most wonderfully nostalgic American pieces uh written by a a composer who was the subject of a biography by Howard Pollack, uh, and we interviewed him on the interview part of our website uh, some months ago uh, and played the entire work, same recording. We're only going to hear the lake uh, from this recording uh, for our purposes, but I I thought I'd, I'd mention that Carpenter is another name Uh, that Mercury brought back, uh, as it were, um, with the issuance of what is probably his most well-known work, or was at a time his most uh, well-known work. Now, uh, he uh, seems to have faded from from our earshot, other than a a couple of recordings, Uh, but it's a name that we should be more familiar with.
2: John Alden Carpenter and Charles Ives were near contemporaries and had very different career paths, but both were avocational composers. Carpenter's family ran a shipping supply company in Chicago that uh, fed and clothed everybody quite well for all of his his life, which ended in 1941. After that is when his uh, uh, performances began to disappear. Prior to that, he'd done quite well, and uh, we are celebrating the centennial of Adventures in a Perambulator, a score premiered in Chicago by Frederick Stock and the Chicago Symphony in 1914. The other thing that Carpenter contributed, besides some ballets like Skyscrapers and Crazy Cat, uh, were also some songs, settings of Tagore. And one of them, uh, When I Bring to You Colored Toys, far surpasses anything else in terms of... of uh, uh, just surviving because it's a recital favorite
0: i should mention that the song is also played in the uh, my interview with howard pollack about his biography of uh,
2: carpenter now adventures in a perambulator has a nice premise it's a child's view of his surroundings and what happens in the course of being in the perambulator that is being taken for a walk by his nurse uh Fortunately, those comments remain in the score and are unvoiced or unsung, unlike James Agee's Knoxville Summer of 1915, another nostalgic look back at childhood. Uh, Carpenter's a little lighter touch, a little bit more dispassionate, uh, and uh, survives in a way that's perhaps uh, easier to take. We're going to listen to the lake. The lake is one of the most... strongly influenced by french impressionism carpenter was uh very taken with that idiom he had studied uh, with john knowles Payne, who was considered one of the first american composers of the modern type then he studied with elgar in rome of all people Uh, but he went came back to the united states and spent the rest of his life turning out music that found favor And interestingly enough, where Ives couldn't get to first base as uh, uh, making a recording, Carpenter was, at least three scores were recorded by RCA Victor uh, by Carpenter, including the uh, 1933 Adventures in a Perambulator with Eugene Normandy and the Minneapolis Symphony. So let's listen to Howard Hanson in the Eastman Rochester Symphony Orchestra. This was the first stereo recording, needless to say. And this is The Lake,
1: That was The Lake, from John Alden Carpenter's Adventures in a Perambulator, uh, the Eastman Rochester Orchestra, conducted by Howard Hansen.
0: Before we leave this recording, I just wanted to mention that the recording, on which the Ives piece is is, is included, uh, has also a work by Peter Menon, his Fifth Symphony, uh, which this recording introduced me to. Uh, and I, I thought it was a marvelous piece. Uh, and was very impressed with it. In fact, uh, subsequently, a few other of his symphonies have been recorded. Uh, but he was a fine composer who uh, unfortunately um, uh, got involved in, in a dispute with uh, William Schumann that uh, seemed to be, have been a crisis point, uh, at least in his life. Uh, but be that as it may, uh, I, I recommend highly, we're not going to play the men in, but I recommend it highly to you. Uh, when I, as I hope you will, uh, purchase uh, this set uh, as as with the first set. Um, all of the recordings here are marvelous, but this Menon sticks in my mind as being extra special.
1: Next, we're going to hear two mono recordings, two selections from each. The first one is Hindemith's Symphonic Metamorphosis, of themes by Carl Maria von Weber. I emphasize the metamorphosis because you will often see it in in program notes as metamorphoses, but it is metamorphosis, um, and at least on uh, Hinnemmet's, uh, uh, Hinnemmet's, uh own score it is. And we are going to hear the Andantino and the Marsh, played by Chicago Symphony Orchestra under Raphael Kubelik. Um, you may remember from our from our first Mercury uh, discussion, um, Wilma talking about uh, working with Raphael Kublik and what a lovely man he was to work with, and what a great musician and how everyone just loved him there in Chicago, except apparently the uh, critic uh, Claudia Cassidy. Um, but at any rate, uh, you'll hear just what uh, Kublik was capable of in this particular piece. Uh, Also on this set, by the way, is uh, his recording of the Dvorak New World and the Mozart Prague, which I highly recommend as well. But we are going to hear the Hindemith piece, and um, so uh, let's go with that.
2: and Marsh from Paul Hindemith's Symphonic Metamorphosis on Themes of karl Maria von Weber. Raphael Kubelik conducted the Chicago Symphony Orchestra in that recording from early on in the building of the Mercury Catalog. Uh, you wonder why Hindemith. Uh, well, he this was actually an American work during his uh, sojourn in the United States. The New York Philharmonic commissioned It and Arta Radrinsky premiered it in 1943. There had been an earlier recording than the Kubeliks, an excellent performance with George Sell and the Cleveland Orchestra, but uh, Kubelik certainly had a much more interesting sound and a, a kind of brashness, you might say, that was entirely appropriate. Remember that these Weber themes are all taken from music for four hands, that nobody knew, which is why Hindemith treated it and uh, did it in a way that angered some critics who thought that his treatment was too jazzy or d- disrespectful. But anyway, it was a popular work at the time. You don't hear it very often anymore, but uh, it certainly uh, wasn't, again, that to use that hackneyed phrase, an ear-opener for people who bought the record at the time. I grew up in Minneapolis and the recordings that were issued by the Minneapolis Symphony under Antaldorati were a source of pride needless to say but in particular was the pride that was taken in the release of Swan Lake. Swan Lake had never been recorded in its entirety before and this was that complete performance uh, in addition to which there were other attempts at recordings of the, the score in whole or in part. This one had the magic that Dorati, as a premier ballet conductor, could bring to the music. And when we listen to these excerpts, one of the things that you hear, not only obviously do you hear the beats, but you, it's an implicit that you hear the afterbeats. This is something he could do with articulation that very few other conductors could, and in ballet music, of course, he was at his at his f- finest. Uh, Sedge, did you have something to contribute?
1: Well, I wanted to say something about uh, about Hindemith. Um, just simply, you said that uh, this isn't played all that often anymore. Are there any pieces by Hindemith that are played more often?
2: Matisse der Mahler. Uh,
1: not that much more. This is, this is, is. But the thing about this piece is this is considered a light enough piece that it won't scare uh, people uh, away from Hindemith. I don't know what there's to be scared from. Uh, he, he wrote wonderful pieces, including the Matisse der Mahler Symphony, and they ought to be played all the time.
2: Well, we, have, we could we have to go to the American Symphony Orchestra League or whatever whatever they call themselves these days, to get the numbers. But I myself have heard two different performances of the concert music for strings and brass in New York concert halls very recently. Mm.
1: But going back to Swan Lake, this was something that I know Wilma took great, great, great deal of pride in, Um, the... um, this was, maybe she would have done the other two, uh, the, the, uh, the Nutcracker and Sleeping Beauty, uh, if there had been time. But um, the series was over, and um, that was at that, I'm afraid. Uh, she chose this because Durati had re-recorded The Nutcracker in, uh, in stereo. It's on the first set, which we already have dealt with. Um, and he had also done Sleeping Beauty for Phillips, I know that when I worked at Philips in uh, 70 and 72, my boss, Scott Mappy, tried again and again and again to get Philips to record Durati in Swan Lake because they had recorded a new Nutcracker with the Concert Cabal, and boy, would that have been beautiful. But at any rate, we have this gorgeous performance here. As I said, it's in mono. It's 1954 recording. Um, the Act One Valse. And the Act to Sen are the two things. The Vals is just wonderfully lilting uh, uh, and played just beautifully. You'll, you'll see what uh, Dennis was talking about. And the Act to Sen is, is one of those. Is, that's the, um, the black swan scene. And uh, uh, old uh, fans of or fans of the old universal horror films will recognize this as the title music for The Mummy and for Dracula. Bum bum
2: It's a pleasure to listen to these excerpts from Swan Lake with Dorothy and the Minneapolis Symphony Orchestra there is a certain brightness to the sound and one of the reasons is that Wilma in her Simon Pure approach to remastering would not indulge in any parametric equalization in when the recording was made Everyone was complaining about the relatively dead acoustics of Northrop Auditorium in Minneapolis, which is where the Minneapolis Symphony played. And in an effort to try and bring more uh, resonance into the sound, Mercury engineers fed the microphone output into a PA system mounted in the room that... uh, maybe delayed it by just enough to give the illusion of reverberation. It also added a terrible color to the audio, which they had no way of getting out with the technology of that time. We do, and the fact that it could it could be improved beyond it, uh, the, the way you hear it on these reissued CDs is a testament to people not always exercising the best judgment.
1: Well, at least it was... Pure to uh, the original LP, which a lot of go- golden ears, like the people at Absolute Sound, uh, would have, they just would have been up in arms at a changing of the timbre of the orchestra.
2: Relatively late in his life, Mercury recorded Marcel Dupré, one of the 20th century's great organists, in both his home uh, instrument in uh, Saint Sulpice in Paris and also the organ at St. Thomas Church in New York City. That is the venue from which this recording of Franck's Pièce Héroïque comes from. This was a work, of course, completely uh, associated with Dupré. It's a virtuoso organ piece. He recorded it in 1926 for the first time, and uh, this is, believe me, uh, it's a different instrument, and organ recordings always have to be couched in the quality of the instruments that are recorded. And St. Thomas has one of the better uh, instruments in Manhattan. So Mercury's recording of it in, uh, is quite successful and more successful on CD than LP ever. So let's listen to Marcel Dupré in Franc's pièce Thank mm-hmm. you. Yes, Heroic, by César Franck. That recording of Marcel Dupré playing the organ at St. Thomas Church, New York City, recorded by Mercury, reissued on the second set of CD reissues. We listened to the first suite, or an excerpt therefrom, of Respighi's Ancient Airs and Dances, to give it its most usual English translation. And, of course, there was a fourth one, but it wasn't called that. It was the birds, gli And we're going to hear the cuckoo. It's pretty much the same style as the ancient airs and dances, but the subjects are all avian. Now, this recording is made with Antaldorati, but the orchestra here is the London Symphony.
1: Spiggy's the birds, from which you heard the cuckoo. And I'm very sorry you couldn't hear the entire thing. So go out and buy this box, and you'll be able to hear all of it. This is one of my very favorites of, in the Mercury catalog, and also of Durati's conducting. The, the, the instrumental playing of the LSO, the, uh, especially in the hen, which is the third of the birds, um, and we probably should have put that on, but, uh, well, you you go and listen to it and see what you think. Um, this, this is an extraordinary performance, and, and it it just annoys me so much that conductors these days are not playing any rispigi. There are a handful of works that are so beautiful to listen to and would make uh, any program, uh, any concert program, uh, uh, glitter with its brilliance. He learned his, uh, his skill from Rimsky-Korsakov, um, his, um, uh, his orchestration, and um, you hear it in the birds, you hear it in Brazilian Impressions, which is also on this CD. And you can hear it on the, fi- the Fountains and the Pines of Rome, which is also, here's an example of two LPs that came together very neatly onto one CD. And I remember Wilma getting very angry at me when um, I said that I thought that Reiner's performance was better than Doherty's performance of Fountains and Pines. Um, And we had a little tiff about that. It didn't last for long. But anyway, Uh, I listened to it again just this weekend. And, you know, those are awfully good performances. They really are. So uh, this is a good CD. There's no doubt about it.
2: Yes, Wilma could have been easily displeased. She was not known as she who must be obeyed for nothing. The next piece we have is uh, a remake, a stereo remake, you might say, of the Schoenberg, five pieces for orchestra. This was originally done for Mercury by Kubelik and the Chicago Symphony, in fact, on the flip side of that Hindemith symphonic metamorphosis. This, uh, again, features the LSO, with Antaldorati this time. And we are going to listen to Summer Morning by a Lake. Now, we had another piece about a lake not so long ago with by John Alden Carpenter. Well, Five Pieces for Orchestra was actually premiered two years before Adventures in a Perambulator, and you won't find Schoenberg's <laughs> Lake anything like Carpenter's Lake. After the lake we get uh, the obligatory recitative. You have to ask yourself, in 1912, when Sir Henry Wood conducted the British premiere of this work, uh, what audiences thought of this music? Carpenters is approachable to any audience at any time. We've learned, supposedly, to love these Schoenberg pieces, and yet you have to wonder what on earth this man was thinking of into the audiences of 1912
1: well it still sounds like music from another world i listened to it again over the weekend and it's a wonderful wonderful performance that Dorati does and it was justifiably appraised to the hilt by critics of the time, this also has on it uh, Webern's five pieces for orchestra, Berg's three pieces for orchestra, and the Lulu Suite. The Lulu Suite comes from another LP, but you have to you you have to hand it to to um, Mercury for putting this record out because uh, this was pretty daring at the time, and uh, Dorothy, Dorothy gets a uh, quite a response from the LSO on on this. Uh, by the way, um, it, it the Kubelik, five pieces for orchestra, is on with the Hindemith Symphonic Metamorphosis. So you can compare these in this set.
0: just heard two of the five pieces for orchestra by Arnold Schoenberg, Summer Morning by a Lake, if you believe that. The other one is called the Obligatory Rectative, performed by the London Symphony, directed by Anto Doherty. And now again we go to another experience, uh, back to the neo-romantic Hansen as composer rather than conductor, but also as conductor. Uh, and, of course, he was a natural exponent of his own music. And Mercury did a, a superb job in giving him an opportunity uh, to record a good deal uh, of his works. Uh, the Second Symphony, we're going to hear a movement from, uh, which is subtitled The Romantic. Uh, I guess bespeaks what Hansen was at that time about. He, uh, it, it, he changed somewhat toward later years, uh, but uh, by and large he was a conservative uh, composer uh, who, who stuck to the, the tonal system and, and, and wrote some very beautiful music in, in, in consequence. Uh, I particularly enjoyed the second because it was the first one I heard of his many, many years ago, but we're going to only play one of the movements, uh, the Allegro con Brio, its third movement uh, of the work again performed by the Eastman Rochester Symphony, directed by Howard Hanson.
1: was the Hansen Symphony No. 2 third movement. This is his romantic symphony, and the third movement is the Allegro Con Brio. And he's conducting the Eastman Rochester Orchestra. There was up in Eastman what was called uh, the Eastman Sound. And basically, uh, as you said, Lou, he, he was a conservative composer. And he pretty much ran the roost as a conservative uh, conservatory. Um, and you hear again and again by so many of the con- uh, composers in Mercury recordings a sound that you think, is that Hanson? No, it's not Hanson. These are his fellow composers who composed in the way that they knew he would like. Menon is one of those. I remember hearing the Moby Dick cantata, and I had no idea what Menon's background was. But after a couple of minutes, I said, this guy went to Eastman, and absolutely he did. Uh, It was a sound that is, you, you can immediately recognize it. And so what we've heard is the third movement of the real thing, um, the real Eastman sound. Now this was another of the works that Dennis referred to back when he talked about um, the um, uh, Symphony of Psalms by Stravinsky and the Roussel Third um, pieces that uh, that Serge Kusevitsky commissioned for the 50th anniversary of the Boston Symphony. This was another one of them, the Hanson Second, when Hanson was a big, important, um, a big, important composer that you really had to pay attention to. And now everyone seems to have forgotten him. I listened to this uh, with my wife over this past weekend, and she said, that is a gorgeous piece of music. Why isn't this played? Another one she liked a lot was the Chadwick piece. She liked that. Uh, we listen all to all of the symphonic sketches. There, there's, there's just a wealth of music on these boxes that we don't hear anymore, and we're all the worse for it, as far as I'm concerned.
2: Well, Hanson's a bit more subversive, a bit less subversive than Chadwick, and that's one of the things that perhaps keeps the vitality of the symphonic sketches uh, a little more vital. But, uh, and I liked your comment about Hansen, and then, of course, in addition to Hansen, there was the Hansonettes, and uh, that described an entire generation of composers trained at Eastman. Of course, in the, in the onslaught of the juggernaut of modernism, all of it was swept away in terms of uh, informing our concert halls of uh, performances of these pieces. They just didn't get heard. But one thing that did get heard in the 50s, if you grew up in the 50s, was Leroy Anderson's novelty instrumental pieces. They were everywhere. The syncopated clock was the theme music for a TV quiz show. And uh, uh, one of his most popular, that no one remembers, is the Blue Tango. Uh, Liberace performed the Blue Tango on one of his programs. And the typewriter that uh, sounded like a typewriter.
1: It was and, a typewriter. And uh,
2: right. yeah. anyway, the uh, <laughs> the uh, the novelty definitely made them among the most played, most broadcast uh, pieces, but not so much recorded, although there were singles of some of these things. The composer himself recorded some of them for Decca, and uh, when Fred Fennell recorded Sleigh Ride on a Mercury... LP, in the late 50s, again, like the Holst Band Suites and the other things on British Band Classics, which was the name of the LP from which that music came from, people just p- pricked up their ears, because Sleeride in this, I've never heard it, as much, exhi- as exhilarating and properly done as a piece of music as this performance. So that's why I'm so happy to see it back uh, in this CD reissue. Uh, This is another pseudonymous uh, pseudonymous orchestra, the Eastman Rochester Pops. There was no such thing. It was just the (laughs) Eastman Rochester Symphony Orchestra because somebody in the Mercury marketing department thought it sounded cute to uh, put Leroy Anderson and, and other light pieces. Uh, we could uh, do an entire program on the degree to which the pop concert repertoire has been discriminated against and oppressed within the last 30 years but that's for another program let's just enjoy sleigh ride by leroy anderson frederick finnell conducting the eastman rochester pops orchestra
0: That was Sleigh Ride by the American composer Leroy Anderson with the so-called Eastman Rochester Pops Orchestra, directed by Frederick Fennell. Uh, Anderson has always been a favorite of mine, and I've included him. You, For those of you who listen to the Buried Treasure programs, uh, uh, I've included a couple of pieces, uh, most recently in a program that I don't think you're... It has been posted yet on humor and music uh, which was perfect for Anderson's music uh, particularly the waltzing cat which is what I played uh, in that instance but uh, Dennis mentioned uh, the recordings by the composer uh, which I've always enjoyed uh, and yes Fennell, wonderful recordings uh, but I I wanted to make the following comment when the centennial I think it was the it was either a a sesquicentennial, I can't remember exactly, uh, of the composer, occurred a few years ago. Um, another label came out with a, a an extensive series of recordings of Anderson conducted by Leonard Slatkin. Uh, well, to try and be kind, there, there, there was, I suppose, that the music as written Was contained in the performances. But if you listen to either Fennell or Anderson, and I recommend both, uh, you'll get a much more natural sense of what this popular music was supposed to sound like than the the many decades later Slatkin version. Uh, And I I say this not to be uh, in any way uh, disparaging of, of, of Maestro Slatkin as much as how the sensibilities of people toward music that did seem to have a popular context at a particular time and then just uh, went into space, as it were. I mean, it's just not the kind of stuff of which the modern listener is made, although I agree completely with Dennis that it is thoroughly enjoyable, uh, unassuming, uh, and... Remarkably diverse. And I I once uh, engaged in an exercise to see how many of his pieces just the average listener of my age could recognize that he wrote. We came up with 22 pieces by Anderson. And because they were... Memorialized in a way uh, on radio, on then later television as theme music. Uh, so many of them. I remember the syncopated clock uh, uh, that was also used uh, for uh, a Sunday afternoon movie program, uh, and 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 so many other the, uh, fa- ra- uh, the uh, Phantom Raiders. Uh, it just goes on and on. Uh, we we might very well do what Dennis suggests in the future uh, and um, build a program around Anderson's music and those of others of like light American music genre uh, or light British music genre for that matter since so much has come out uh, from there. Uh, So uh, Dennis, I know you wanted to make a comment too.
2: Well, uh, Leroy Anderson comes from the same tradition as Eric Coates, for instance, uh, a British composer who is famous for certain pieces that have remained uh, at least recognizable for more than 100 years. Uh, what killed Leroy Anderson uh, was the fact that those novelty pieces weren't considered suitable concert fare, just as the Zampa Overture ceased to be considered suitable concert fare. And rock and roll on the radio just drove it away. That was all. I mean, we live in an era of indescribable noise. And relatively naive, zesty, cute, uh, amusing pieces have gotten lost in the dust somewhere. But uh, uh, And and I think this is a good way to introduce the next piece, which is also a Fennell product and it is tribute what he brought to the repertoire. This is a march by John Philip Sousa, Hands Across the Sea. And uh, it's a not the best known, but it's a well-known Sousa march. What Fennell did brought a youthful zest and a musicological scrupulousness to the performances of these pieces that he recorded for Mercury back in the uh, early to mid-50s. No one had approached this music with the idea that it was worthy of this kind of uh, preparation and he had players who could do it and he had uh, a recording company that was sympathetic to the idea marches were only part of the repertoire that he recorded but these certainly connected with people who liked the repertoire and who realized that this was this was not what you tuned in the radio to hear in those days the goldman band or the a city Service Band of America. Uh, this was March music played on an entirely different level. And uh, I think we you can't miss it when you listen to it, so why talk any longer? Let's listen to it. Hands Across the Sea by Sousa.
0: should be mentioned um, after hearing the Sousa Hands Across the Sea with the Eastman Wind Ensemble, directed by Frederick Fennell, that the recording uh, that it's from contains numerous pieces by other composers uh, for wind ensemble, including Edwin Franco Goldman, uh, the founder and conductor of the great band that used to play all over the city, uh, really. The, Last time of which was, uh, I think, well, after he had passed, but the orchestra, his band, as it were, uh, survived him and played at Lincoln Center for a while uh, in a band shell that was, I think, created for that purpose.
2: Wouldn't surprise me. It was also the uh, Nomburg band shell in Central Park that was home to them for a long, long time.
1: And now... No one knows what to do with these band shells. Lincoln Center has they they can't get rid of the Damrosh Park band shell because of the family, and so they just simply build over edifices uh, to have uh, have the uh, the what is it the the, the model uh,
2: the Cirque du Soleil uh, and uh, the the acrobats. I can never remember the name of it. Yeah, but, but.
1: there's some convention about uh, the, the new uh, new dresses and. Uh, and uh, styles and all that stuff that they have going on there all the time and then out in uh, the nomburg um, this is a place where they they play uh, uh they, they play amplified music and it drives ned Roram crazy because he wants to compose mm-hmm.
0: i just wanted to mention also that uh, i guess i was fortunate as, as we all were who were at least in new york in, in the 50s and, and 60s uh, to have had band concerts, maybe not like they had in Hyde Park in, in, in London, but nevertheless, we had and Stadium. We did have eventually the Goldman Band Show in Lincoln Center. Uh, and so there was a place that one could wander through, not get formal uh, tickets for, but just go and sit on a midday in a nice, lovely weather, hopefully, Uh, and listen to delightful music, Um, and uh, that's gone. And I wonder, honestly, if uh, it were reintroduced in some fashion, it would be popular.
2: Not as long as it has to compete with other patrons to the park playing amplified uh, music boxes.
0: Well, it wouldn't be, I'd like to think, permitted to interfere, oh, my, but uh, my. That at least is my everyone has their day. And my my sense of the thing is that if someone recognizes the value and enjoyability of this music, it it is entitled to its day. And, and uh, the con- con- constant blasting of other things that would interfere with it shouldn't uh, for this moment in time when it's permitted uh, to to brighten our city with its beauty.
2: Well, here's talking about enjoyment. Here's a really enjoyable piece that is virtually unknown because the composer spent most of his life in Bali and was concerned with the gamelan orchestras of, of that country. Uh, and Hanson, Howard Hanson, that is, uh, was interested in recording his toccata for orchestra called Tabu Tabuan. McPhee was a, a coterie composer, you might say. He had recorded as far back as 1940 with Benjamin Britten. some of his piano music for the Schirmer label, which was a small label run by the music publisher. Anyway, we're not going to worry too much about the provenance, as they like to say on Antiques Roadshow but instead just listen to Ostinatos from Tabu Tabuan by Colin McPhee, Howard Hansen, and the Eastman Rochester Symphony Orchestra.
1: ostinatos from Colin McPhee's *Tabu Tabu Han* is Takada for orchestra, and this is just another example of, it seems to me, Hansen's far-reaching sight uh, of, regarding music. this This piece has become um, this piece has become a, a precursor of minimalism. Who'd have thunk it, Howard Hanson, that conservative? recording a piece like this um, that has become so well known uh, amongst uh, the minimalists. Um, but uh, here the performance was with the Eastman Rochester Orchestra under Howard Hanson. And also on that disc is Roger Sessions' The Black Maskers Orchestral Suite. And that's another piece that we never hear anymore. And Roger ha- Roger Sessions, uh, the, the um, uh, the academic twelve-tone uh, man. Here's a piece written before that, when he was in a more romantic period. Also on here are two pieces by Virgil Thompson. This is uh, uh, just another wonderful CD uh, by Hanson that um, you'll want to hear.
2: Uh, we don't use the word romantic with Roger Sessions any time. He is, was an austere muse. That did not admit romanticism. It was a Stravinskyan period in his uh, compositional career that engendered the Black Maskers. So
1: neoclassical then?
2: You could say that.
1: Okay, well, romantic for Roger Sessions.
0: What I wanted to say was that Sessions is a composer that had achieved some status among American composers and now has disappeared from the repertory almost entirely, despite some magnificent works of the symphonies. Um, His opera, Montezuma, my God, remains unrecorded. Uh, I went up to see it in Boston when when Sarah Caldwell did it. Yes, I remember her. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, he's an important composer. Now we have a recording of of a work of his not played coming back into the catalog thanks to Mercury's um, reissue. Uh, and in with it, we have Virgil Thompson, a uh, symphony on a hymn tune, uh, a totally different kind of work, but nevertheless, by a composer who also was noted, maybe because he was a rather, may I say, obnoxious music critic, but a, but a brilliant music critic uh, who gave a kind of insightful and sometimes rather direct uh, remarks about uh, performances he'd seen. Uh, Uh, that might not have engendered him well to to, uh, composers or performers, but nevertheless, uh, his music is worthy uh, of of hearing. Uh, And so we have this wonderful uh, recording with McPhee and Sessions and Thompson to fill gaps uh, that really should well be filled. Now we're going to hear another of
1: Paré's recordings of French music. We have uh, he recorded uh, a good deal of Debussy and Ravel, but this is a piece by Jacques Ibert, Escal, or *Ports of Call*, that he himself did the world premiere of. He conducted the world premiere, and so this was a very special uh, recording on Mercury. Valencia, the let's see, the third movement of *The Ports of Call*. Um, this is a, a fun piece. This is a piece that, once again, has been relegated to uh, pops. Unless, uh, it doesn't uh, it doesn't deserve it. Uh, this is a lot of fun, and um, so uh, here you are, Detroit Symphony Orchestra under Paul Pere.
2: Valentia from Escal by Jacques Hubert, Paul Paré conducted the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, a creator's recording of sort, inasmuch as he gave the first performance of the work, although definitely not in Detroit. Janos Starker recorded a number of standard concertos for Mercury, and it was fortunate that uh, He had the opportunity not only to do those works, but um, a number of recital pieces, which uh, were recorded on a couple of different LPs. He uh, usually played with his accompanist, George Shabok, a colleague at Indiana University. And we're going to listen to one of my favorites, which is Bohuslav Martino's Variations on a Theme of Rossini. And when you hear it, you'll know what it is. on a theme of Rossini, a work by Bohuslov Martino performed by cellist Janos Starker and pianist Dürer Scheibach.
1: There are several other composers on this CD, including Chopin and Mendelssohn, of all people. Um, we also have WC Bartok and Leo Weiner. Um, but uh, full CD of uh, Starker and Scheibach. Now for our final our final piece here. We're going to play the entire piece for you. This is Bartok's Dance Suite, another another CD that my wife and I were listening to over the weekend, and it's this performance by dorati I think is just better than any other I've ever heard. Um, it has so much character, it has so much uh, articulation. Uh, we remember about uh, dorati and um, the ending of it especially. He, he gives it a snap that no one else does. Um, You've got to hear the whole thing. And so we're playing the whole thing for you. And this is Durratti conducting the Philharmonia Hungarica.
2: Montal Dorati, conducting the Philharmonica Hungarica in the dance suite of Bela Bartok. And, of course, it's a dance suite, and Dorati was one of the great dance and ballet conductors of the 20th century, and it's entirely appropriate that uh, he feels this music uh, because, of course, he grew up in the presence of the composer And uh, there are many other associations, but mostly it's because he understands the piece and knows how to put it over, which he did very well. And so
0: our sampling of set number two, Mercury Living Presence recordings from the 50s and 60s, comes to a close. I hope you've enjoyed the selections that we presented. They were fairly extensive but I suggest strongly uh, that you go out and get the whole set. It's worth uh, the the price of admission, as they say. Uh, We believe that there will be, in fact, hopefully before the end of the year, a third set uh, of yet more Mercury Living Presence recordings. Uh, And uh, so the next time the three of us meet, we will sample from that set as well. Until then... This is Lou Smoley with Cedric Clark and Dennis Rooney wishing you great listening experiences.